Hey, welcome to the Hell Has an Exit podcast. I'm your host, Brian Alzate. This show is not affiliated with any specific 12-step program. If you or a loved one is struggling with an addiction, please find a local 12-step meeting. If you believe you may need detox or drug treatment of any kind, please call 888-699-9395 to speak to a specialist. The show is sponsored by United Recovery Project, a state-of-the-art drug and alcohol rehab facility. You can visit our website at unitedrecoveryproject.com. All right, welcome to Hell Has an Exit. I'm your host, Brian Alzate. On this show, we interview guests who have been through any type of uh, circumstance that's difficult. We do a lot of recovering addicts. Today on the show, we have close childhood friend Danny Prada. I've known Danny since I was a kid, and uh, we grew up together. You grew up like three streets over Mm -hmm. from me. We have gone totally separate paths, you know, like I always tell people. Because, like, whenever I, sh- you know, you're a priest or a pastor. Are you calling me a priest, Brian? Really? <laughs> really? I make fun of the people who oh call me God. that. I- I'm in L.A. Fitness and people are like, father, father. I've been meaning to talk to you. I'm like, I'm not a father, dude. I'm not your priest. You're a pastor? People, a big difference? I was at the wharf a couple weeks ago. Somebody comes up to me while I'm, you know, ordering a little drink. Uh-huh. And this dude, he's definitely drunk. Mm-hmm. And he comes up to me. He starts like, confessing? No, he starts introducing me to all of his friends as, as his pastor. Yeah, as oh, his, his priest. priest. Excuse yeah. me. Yes, as his priest. I'm like, dude. Yeah, some people don't see the difference. Uh, <laughs> that's how I feel when people say I'm sober. Wow. Because to me, I'm in recovery right. and I go to a different fellowship and we you say clean. Right. And that might not seem like a big deal to you, but you know, to me, I'm like, nah, bro, it's clean. And I'm not... You know, I'm sure you're not knocking someone nah, who's a no. priest either. I'm messing. You know, but yeah, there are terminologies that right. make a difference to people. Yeah, so you became a pastor and uh, became uh, involved in religion, and I became a drug addict, you know. <laughs> but um, growing up, did you see, like, my path diverting? I don't think I did. When you started um, going down that route— I don't think I was very connected to you. I had more of a relationship with your brother, mm-hmm. but you were always around. Yeah, yeah, you know. So like, we have those pictures of each other at, in one <laughs> yeah. another's homes, and like, yeah, yeah. like when you were a little jit. Yeah, hilarious, bro. Before the corruption, I knew yeah, you. Before. Yeah, before the corruption. Do you? Uh, did you like think that that would happen to me? Oh, no, no. I had no idea. And I didn't really realize the extent of it until much later on yeah, when yeah. we reconnected, uh-huh. you know, realizing that you went off to freaking, what was this, boarding school? Boarding or, school. Yeah, and, and, and all of this. Rehab, whatever. Yeah, yeah. So a funny story I always share. So um, when I was, uh, I was probably clean like seven, eight years. And like, I was a fan of church, but I never went to church. Like my mom would invite me to go. We'd go like on a holiday, maybe. But at that time, I was open-minded enough that if someone were to invite me, I would go. And I remember you, you know, I knew that you were uh, very popular at this other church. My mom would always say, mm-hmm. oh, I saw Danny singing at Flamingo Road or whatever. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You asked me, like, you had this Bible study. And I thought it was cool. I wanted to support you. Real friends support real friends, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. So I was like, yeah, I'll go to this. And it was at your parents' house. And I sponsor a lot of people in the 12-step program. And I was like, hey, guys, if you want to go to Bible study, I'm going to go on Sunday. And my sponsees think I'm, like, on drugs. They're like, (laughs) no, bro, we're not going to Bible study. This one kid was like, it's not for me. But some of them were like, 
cool. Like some of them were like really interested. Like, right. yeah, let's go. And I remember we went and that's when you got introduced to Drew and we would go yeah. and um, not for nothing, but there was a lot of pretty girls there because you and Emily are like really into the gym and fitness and all this stuff. And you guys don't look like, you know, your average church goers. Right. And um, we start going and I not joking. Like I remember there was a couple stories that you talked about that I had known the concept of them. But I think that something changes when someone's clean a couple of years that mm. the stories start to hit differently when you've opened your heart and your mm -hmm. spirit up already. Mm -hmm. And there were some stories that had me crying, mm. like in tears. Like I wouldn't show nobody I was crying, but there were some stories yeah. that had me really impacted at that Bible study. And then I went a couple times and I was like, all right, that's it. Mm -hmm. And then my sponsees would be like, bro, are we going to Bible study? I'm like, no, nah, right. I'm not going to go this week. And they'd be like, oh, you're a bad Christian. <laughs> you don't want to support Danny. Oh, bro, Danny's the man. We got to go support him. And I was like, all right. So we made a habit of going. Yep. And we felt like outsiders, like, you know, here we are, like ex-drug addicts at like this church thing. I remember like, uh, shout out Dom Chavon. Yep. He had broke up with his girlfriend and he was all sad and depressed. And I, I love like, this story. I was like, bro, you got to hang out with the boys tonight. We're going to go out. He's like, no, I don't know. I'm like, bro, we're going to go to the strip club. We're going to go to Tootsie's. <laughs> He's like, for real? I'm like, yeah, bro. So we pull up to your house. Like, it didn't hit him there. He thought we were meeting someone first or something. Right. And I remember we tricked him into going to Bible study. Oh, man. And he loved it. He still loves Heartway Church. I always tell that story. But um, that was my first introduction to somebody going to church and not really labeling themselves as a Christian, right. which I try to like tell people like, hey, man, mm -hmm. like I can do things and not like mm -hmm. label myself as mm -hmm. it, you know what I mean? Like mm -hmm. I can go visit other areas and not consider mm -hmm. myself or label myself forever. Mm -hmm. And I remember I was uh, what I would consider a, a regular churchgoer at Heartway. You started this church and I started going. And I remember like being really scared to tell you this. And I remember I told you like, uh, yeah, you know, Danny, uh, I love going to church, but like, I don't know if I'm like a, I don't know if I'm like a Christian. And I thought you were going to get into this in-depth conversation. Right. And you just like looked at me and you're like, it's okay, bro. I love you. And you just like kept walking. <laughs> right. I think that's what's motivated me or like helped me get over the stigma of church. Right. Of it being like some type of mm -hmm. belief where like, you're going to try to convince me of something mm -hmm. where it's kind of like you always say this. And I always, I never heard no one else say this, but you have to hold your ideas with an open palm and not mm -hmm. a closed fist. Mm -hmm. And I feel like you truly do that. I understand. So I see a lot of similarities where me getting clean at a young age, people didn't take my recovery seriously or think it would last because I was young. I chose to take recovery seriously. You know, since I was 17, I haven't had a sip of beer. Uh, chose not to go to parties for a long time, chose not to go to the club scene, wanted to really in get involved in recovery. And then I really got, you know, inspired to help other addicts and really made it my mission in life to help other addicts. Very similar to you, where I'm sure being young at 19 years old, uh, being Christian is not the coolest thing to be. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure that you struggled with your own identity, mm -hmm. who you are, mm -hmm. meeting women, Thinking yep. you're a Jesus freak, yep. you know, uh, your own beliefs in coming from a hardcore Christian upbringing to what you would consider as progressive, mm -hmm. right? I just want to hear like your side of like how your story has evolved. Yeah. You know? Well, 
Because your parents grew up super Christian. So backtrack. Yeah. I remember going yeah. to your house. We couldn't watch BET. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I remember. Well, because, you know, BET after a certain time was playing a show called Uncut. Yes. You remember that? Of course. Yeah. Of course. I mean, how could we forget it? Mm-hmm. But, you know, my parents knew about that and they tried to tried to protect my young, pure eyes. Yeah. And we were not watching. Like, I remember it was super, like, we used to laugh. Like, we was like, <laughs> yeah. bro, Danny's house, like, he can't do anything, you know? <laughs> yeah. You know, K-Rod would come over and like, bro, you, like, you know, we were pretty wild. And right. We were just, and I remember you didn't have siblings. So, right. like, I remember you freaking out because, like, we sat on your bed. Oh, dude, I used to really not like that. In fact, when I went to college, I had roommates for the first time in college. And I would leave every weekend because I already got hired at this big mega church mm-hmm. in South Florida. So, I would leave the dorm every weekend. And they would send me pictures of themselves inside of my bed and in the bed sheets because they knew it was going to take me off. Yeah. yeah. I had a little OCD problem. But anyways, it's been interesting to hear you talk about kind of your experience at Heartway because in the same way that you describe yourself as someone without rigid labels, we've kind of moved in that direction too. So when Heartway began and when you first started coming to Heartway, we were definitely more Christian than we are now. Yeah, sometimes I tell people like, I go to this church, but it's not really a church. Yeah, <laughs> like I wish we're just like people that come together. Right. And sometimes like I feel like there's new people there welcoming mm-hmm. me. And I'm like, well, bro, like right. you just like you know, <laughs> right. I've been you know, I've, I've been, been coming I've been coming here. here since it was like a Bible study thing. So right. like and I know you personally. Right. To me, I don't see it as a religious right. thing that I used to because I remember as a kid, bro, we would go to church as a kid, and sometimes my dad would go. And I remember we'd go and we'd hear this message about kindness and mm-hmm. forgiveness and love and they'd explain the Bible. And then in the car on the way home, it would all go out the window, yeah. like cursing, yeah. oh, look at this guy, whatever. And I really right. saw a lot of contradictory going on. Yep. Um, I really thought religion was silly and, and uh, you know, mm-hmm. the only person I knew who was religious was my mom, who was borderline crazy, you know. <laughs> and I say borderline crazy because my mom had a lot of faith where there was no evidence. Mm-hmm. My mom has always believed that things were going to work right. out with zero evidence. And right. we labeled that as crazy, wow. you know, even with my story, you yeah. know. Yeah. So up until heart way, I really didn't really see church any other way mm-hmm. as opposed to I identify with the sinner. Mm-hmm. Like I mm-hmm. go to, like I tell people like, oh, I go to church because I identify with sinners, not right. Christians. Right, right, know? right. I go to church because I'm not perfect. I go right. to church because like, I feel like I really lack in a lot of areas. Right. And I used to be ashamed of that. I used to think like, oh, I can't go to church, Brian. Like, yeah, I went to the club last night. You right, know what I mean? right, right. Well, I feel like heart way is a place where Definitely does not encourage that, but encourages you to come as you are. Right. Because that's really what freedom is. It's accepting yourself as you are. And the reason why we get into these habitual patterns that can be toxic and unhelpful is because we aren't content with ourselves as we are. And so we look for that sort of validation, affirmation outside of ourselves. Mm -hmm. So a lot of folks think it's about changing their behavior, but... That's the fruit. We got to get to the root. Mm-hmm. And the root is your identity, who you are. And so that's our work. And what we do at Heartway is we help remind people who they are and who you are beyond what you do or don't do. 
who you are beyond your successes and failures, who you are beyond what you think about yourself or what other people think about you. And as we move into this place of total self-acceptance and we remove self-judgment from the equation, real transformation can begin to happen. So this is a message of love. It's a message of getting connected to your heart. Our message is one of self-discovery, getting to know yourself, because that's really the beginning of all wisdom is knowing yourself. A lot of times we try and fix ourselves, but how can you fix or change what you don't understand? Mm -hmm. So that's the first step that I help people take is understand yourself and do it without putting blame or guilt on yourself. I was, I'm reading this book called The Monk Who Sold His Ferrari. Love it. In the book, he says, you know, the, the one thing that identifies us different from animals is that we have the ability to become self-aware of an mm. issue and change. Mm -hmm. And that an animal can never say, hey, how did I act yesterday? Right. Maybe I can change how I acted. Only a human has the ability to reflect yes. at the end of the day and say, where could I have done better? And then wake up the next day and say, where am I going to do better? And start implementing change. And he said, uh, change, the ability to change oneself is what differentiates us from animals. That is huge. That is huge. Cool. And yes, that's the power and the capacity that every single one of us has. But you have to be willing to face your stuff. You know, you have to be willing to own your stuff. Mm -hmm. You have to be willing to be honest and vulnerable, like you said, and not be ashamed of your weaknesses and the areas where you may not have gotten it right. And so we don't want to go there because we're stuck in cycles of guilt and shame. So we don't want to go anywhere near that. Plus, we blame most people. Mm -hmm. you, know, you know, we blame others or situations and circumstances outside of ourselves for us being the way that we are. We don't want to take responsibility. That's a, that's a very difficult process. It takes a lot of courage for somebody to go inward and seek to know themselves and understand themselves. But that is where all transformation begins. And so... Uh, one thing that's always been inspirational watching you is how much you read other books. Mm -hmm. How many books do you think you've read? Well, see, I've read a lot of books, but that's part of my story is that I, I was looking for intellectual answers for a very, very, very long time. Mm -hmm. And the only books that I would read, it, hundreds of books, the only books that I would read were around the topics of theology, philosophy, metaphysics, and spirituality. I've never read like a fiction book or a mystery <laughs> book or yeah. a you know, romance novel. Like I, All my books were just really dense, heavy, philosophical, big life questions about ultimate reality stuff. Mm -hmm. And the reason why was because my old parents- Challenging Christianity or- well, a lot of those were Christian in origin, and then I began this process of rethinking my faith and really, they call it deconstruction. Like mm -hmm. I deconstructed the inherited belief system that I received, and so Christianity definitely was put to the fire in mm -hmm. that sense. Like I, I really had a lot of questions about some of the things I was taught. And well, I believe people do this with life where, mm -hmm. you know, you grew up with nothing and then you start acquiring all these things and mm -hmm. then you think that you uh -huh. need to have all these things to make up who you are. Yes. And then you go backwards to yes. when you had nothing as a little kid and uh, you were just as content. Right. You were just as whole right. back then than you are now. Right. If not, you actually are like 
the more exclusive or the more rigid the idea, mm -hmm. the more cut it gets, the more yes. uh, watered down it gets. Absolutely. In fact, the way I see it now is the more rigid a belief is in my mind, the more delusional it is. <laughs> I try to let it go almost immediately <laughs> yeah. because I know I'm confusing and deceiving myself. And even in like the 12th, like when we get to the 11th step in the book, it says uh, the 11th step cannot be adequately explained in words. Mm. To begin to describe it would be a beginning to water it down. Yes. And uh, there's something that goes, you know, with spirituality and like, you know, I, I don't might not come across as like the most spiritual person, but I don't. I have a spiritual relationship, right? Because I practice like communication right. and prayer, right. or, or whatever it is, you know. But let's backtrack to your story. Yes. So growing up, okay, right. What was your belief growing up? What was your childhood like? Did you feel like bullied? Did you feel out of place? Did you feel well? You know, I feel like I I was always the kid that got along with everybody. But I did have an addiction and an obsession with being liked mm -hmm. and getting other people's approval probably stemmed from my parents who I felt I needed to gain approval from and earn approval from. And so that just kind of became the way that I related to everybody in my life. And so it made me a people pleaser. Mm -hmm. And so in one sense, I was very good at what I did, but on the other hand, it's a very empty way of living because you can have a lot of acquaintances, but you have very few friends, you know, and you know everybody, but nobody really knows you because you're not really in touch with yourself. I couldn't be myself. I had to pretend to be mm -hmm. who you wanted me to be so that you could like me. That's my story. You know, <laughs> I, it's interesting because even though you grew up different than I did, in therapy, I've learned that like two opposites are the same inverted. Mm -hmm. So I know that the kid who is a people pleaser and gets straight A's and follows all the rules right. is the same behavior as the kid who gets all F's and disobeys all the rules mm. because they both are the same thing inverted. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times in the world, we'll look at someone who's the opposite of us yep. and we're like, look at this person, da 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 da. But uh, the homeless guy who renounces all his possessions and says, screw the world, is mm -hmm. the same as the businessman trying to acquire all the things mm. and take over the world. Powerful. Powerful. Sorry to interrupt. No. Let's bring, uh, let's go. So, you know, that was me growing up and religion was definitely a, a big part of my upbringing, my, you know, there wasn't a choice in the matter. We're Christians and that's it, you know, and even if you wanted to sleep over, you remember this. You would have to come to church with us on Sunday morning. Oh, my morning. God. I forgot about that. Yes. Yeah, bro. I remember, like, your <laughs> your parents were like, oh, if your friend wants to sleep yes. over, he has to come to church with us. Yes, bro. So that wow. was the rule. If it was a Saturday night thing, like, Sunday we're going to church. And I grew up in a typical, like, evangelical setting. Um, I didn't know that. Yeah. It was just a fundamentalist version of Christianity that I also eventually ended up adopting in graduate school. Even when I was working towards my Master mm -hmm. of Divinity, I went to the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary School. So this is like really strict Jesus, literal Bible interpretation type deal. Mm -hmm. And so it's a very narrow little box. And I started getting bothered by the fact that everybody else was wrong except us, even amongst our, Other our fellow Christians, yeah, yeah. right? It was like our 
brand of Christianity is, is the, the most pure. Right. It's the most pure. And we have to defend it and fight against the false doctrines and teachings that are being spread. I was in attack people, mode. People do this in recovery. Yes, we do this Crazy. with everything. everything. This is this everything. is everything. everything yeah. This is everything. Okay. So people who always say, like, oh, well, religion is this or religion is right. that, or recovery is like this. I'm like, bro, everything. Everything. Your school. Yes. We have school competitions it's or called, school's the best. It's whatever. called humanity. Mm-hmm. It's called ego. Yeah. And ego will use anything, right? Let's back up. So wait, when did you become because People don't know how funny you are. Okay, yes, right. Bro, I right. remember. Yeah, yeah, I was crazy. I remember you in middle school. You were <laughs> off the chain. Yeah, no, no, I was crazy. <laughs> People have no idea. No idea. Oh, my God. I used to flip kids' backpacks yeah. inside out. Yeah. We used to go on. The, remember we turned the bus into a uh, a zoo one day? Oh, my where gosh. Everyone on the bus was making a different oh animal my sound. God. And, and we started that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Man. Yes, I remember that. And I would do anything to make people laugh. You were so funny, bro. And and that continued through high school. Were you religious in high school? No, I had I I, I had just enough religion to feel guilty about like (laughs) looking at a girl's ass for too long. Mm -hmm. But that's about it. You know, like I just had enough of it to feel guilty. And when I got to college is when I had a transformative experience as a result of meeting a group of guys from a fraternity, uh, they came to do a step show at Nova Southeastern University yeah, yeah. Where, I, where I went to school. And after they did their step show, they had one and they started talking about their faith and Jesus. Mm-hmm. And so that spoke to me because here were a bunch of young people my age who were really devoted to their faith. And I was making excuses and saying maybe later in life when I have kids, I'll be religious so my kids can grow up in a moral home like it's I so did. so interesting, bro, because that's the same thing that happened to me in recovery. Yeah. I went to a meeting and saw a bunch of young kids. Yeah. And, and that's when I was like, that, wait, what? That's, that's what spoke to me. And so I started getting connected with them. Long story short, through that fraternity, I ended up in a cult like an like a a legit cult a legit cult where the dude was um he was he was emotionally and sometimes physically abusive i never experienced the physical part definitely the emotional abuse to an extent but this was a group of like maybe 15 people we would meet in this dude's living room he called himself a prophet and it was all about like the end times if you wanted to get into this group you had to pass certain tests read certain books we were only allowed to read certain books that he selected for us if he Mm. found out we were reading books outside of that curriculum we were going to get disciplined and be in trouble it was a very um like we had to submit to authority type of thing and he was our authority like even life decisions like if you're going to have a girlfriend if you're going to move or do things like that I had to to kind of go through this dude. And yeah, so it was, that was like a really fascinating time because of my curiosity. My curiosity is, is what has saved me in life. Mm -hmm. Always asking questions. Because I was always asking questions, I started to see the limitation of this group I was a part of. And by the way, these folks were like all about the end of the world. So the apocalypse is coming. Jesus is coming back. Mm-hmm. And you better be ready. And we are the chosen ones who us fourteen in this have, we ha- and we have the message, and we've got to go save other people. Mm-hmm. So you know, it was like an extreme form of what a lot of Christianity is for a lot of people, but very extreme form. So of it. what drives people to be attracted those to those things are the same things that drives people to be attracted to drugs. Mm. Because what drives me to like. Why would a kid go mm-hmm. out and look for people smoking crack? It's because they long for belonging. It's because yes. they feel empty. It's because they want camaraderie. Yes. Because 
they might get a little bit of it at school, but it's not enough. And then they join something extreme, yes. like a gang yes. or like an, a church mm -hmm. or whatever. And um, and sometimes you end up in places where it can, you don't belong. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And, it, and it's funny because my whole journey has been about belonging, finding a place to belong. And it's like, like you said, I've had to go backwards. This whole, my spiritual transformation has been about going backwards, unlearning, going back. And now it's like, I feel like I've had to learn how to just be alone, mm -hmm. you know, and how to be satisfied and content alone. And it's been, it's been interesting to see how that's happened. But anyways, I had that little stint in the, in the cult and then I left there and spent a couple more years in that fundamentalist religious framework. And then again, my deconstruction happened. I started questioning all my beliefs, started questioning, you know, even the notion of God, heaven and hell, mm -hmm. Christianity and Jesus being the only way that people get to heaven. And after I deconstructed my religion, I then had to deconstruct my sense of self. So, you know, like I started asking questions about what it even means to be human, to exist. Who am I? And that is another exploration that has taken me to wonderful, wonderful places. Mm -hmm. But it was difficult for me to lose my old construct of reality because you got to recognize that that religion, Christianity, was how I understood myself in the world. Mm -hmm. So when that began to crumble, that's why I would read so much because I was looking for answers, looking for answers intellectually. And I finally, like after I started reading about science, I expanded beyond religion. I started reading psychology. I started reading science. I started reading more philosophy. I started realizing that I cannot understand reality or capture reality with my mind. And that is what allowed me to kind of move beyond the need for certainty, move beyond the need to have answers and to come back to this childlike, I don't know. And that has actually permeated every aspect of, of my life mm -hmm. in the sense that I want to approach everything as a beginner. I don't have all the answers. I'm always learning and growing and expanding and I don't arrive at final conclusions because life itself is not conclusive. That leaves me open. That leaves me humble. That leaves me more concerned with understanding other people than trying to convert them or mm -hmm. prove to them that I'm right. It's made me a better listener. And so all of that has come from just kind of questioning my belief systems, you know? And now we have this spiritual community where we invite people to do the same thing. And we invite people to question the mental paradigms and belief systems that are really blocking them from living into the fullness of their potential and the fullness of who they are. Mm -hmm. So, you know, and what is it like, you know, following this faith or trying to and having to change friends, not go to the party or mm -hmm. like, like, how was that transition? That was um, really interesting because I went so extreme, like when I was 19 as a freshman in college and I like converted to Christianity for real and I started getting really serious. Like, you know, you have this guilt thing that you can't do all those sinful things. So immediately, like I broke up with the girlfriend that I had. Mm -hmm. This was my first girlfriend ever. She thought in you were college, crazy. And she ended up thinking I was crazy. She's like, you're insane. You're a Jesus freak. She called me that. She's yeah. like, because I was trying to get her to come to church and like, you know, but then like we'd go to church 
And then after we'd hook up and then I would, after willingly wanting to, I would put a guilt trip on her because I felt horrible that we just did that. Mm -hmm. Of course. (laughs) You know, so it's like, it was just this religion thing. But anyways, like- So you broke up with the girl. At some point I had to break up with her and I, it was just like night and day. And then all my friends that I would go out clubbing with and hanging out with, it was just all of a sudden I cut off those relationships. And now that I look back, I'm like, man, that was really kind of abrupt and harsh. I can see why I thought it was necessary at the time. Like at that time too, I I deleted all the music that I had downloaded from mm-hmm. LimeWire <laughs> and uh, that every, hurts. everything that had cuss words in it. I didn't want to listen to it. I went to the Christian music store and bought a whole bunch of CDs. And it was just like my way of like, I'm changing and I have to do this. I have to eliminate everything that is not. That's kind of what it takes sometimes. Yeah, and and that's (laughs) fun. You know, like that was just the path I was on. You know, there was a time where I became very extreme about recovery. Right. There was a time where like, man, this is my life and I don't want to be shooting heroin. I don't want to die. And Dude, if you smoke weed, I'm not talking to you. Right. If you drink alcohol, right. I'm not right. going near you. I was. I used to bring my book everywhere right. because I needed it close to me. Like yeah. that's how yeah. secure yeah. I was to yeah. recovery. And and I got away from that, you know? Right. I, I learned how to like, you know, have boundaries. Yes. But there was a time In the where, beginning. where I needed to pivot. Yes. If you want to change your life, you kind of have to do something drastic. Yes. In the beginning. Yes. And I hope that you find your way to some type of balance. Yes. But I had to do extreme things. Yes. And I I did that too, you know, more because I felt like there were certain moral and ethical standards that I had to now live up to. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it, it is what it is. I have a different approach now to things but that at that time that's how it was and okay so you basically cut off everybody yeah Yeah. and now i'm like you know jesus he was criticized by his religious contemporaries for being a friend of sinners oh yeah you know i mean i tell people so honestly like going to church and hearing the way that you talk about jesus has made me been like man because i just feel like everyone else was like doing it totally wrong it's like when you read the bible it's like bro this guy Never judged anybody right. and hung out with the worst of the worst yeah. and was like, you know, who are you? Because they need it the most. Well, why would a doctor go hang out with healthy people? You right. know what I mean? Right. So he's trying to do whatever he can. And um, there's so many metaphors in the Bible oh, that have just uh, really blown me away. Sometimes when I see other people... I'm like, what book are you reading? Right. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, it's no, like, no, no. I, know. I thought I read I read something totally different. Right. And that's why, like at Heartway, very recently I, I just started saying this phrase, but I'm starting to describe Heartway as a place where you can find Jesus without Christianity. Mm-hmm. Because the religion that was started in Jesus's name is quite different than Jesus and what he was about and what he taught and what his life represented, which can be summarized in love. But oftentimes when religion gets in the picture, now you have the rules and the regulations. Hierarchy. Now you have the hierarchy. Now you have the beliefs and the dogmas. And now you have in-group and out-group on the basis of Mm -hmm. believing rightly or not. And you know, when I and started outcast people, right, right, and it's an exclusive yes, thing, and exactly. It's, and it's like this is the opposite of what exactly. he was trying to do. Religion actually means to rebind, mm-hmm. to bring together. Oh, that's interesting, right? But it, it's been used as a weapon to bring people apart. So, religion, there's nothing wrong with religion, you know, like it's about how we use it. 
Same thing as with the Bible or with your 12-step book. Mm -hmm. It's about how you use it, you know, because you can use it to bring healing or you can use it to beat people over the head. Mm -hmm. And so how are we going to approach that? But I love like the fact that when I've listened to other spiritual teachers that I admire, like Eckhart Tolle, Adyashani, Muji, these are spiritual teachers that don't have religious affiliations. They're, they talk about enlightenment and non-duality and they're mystics. And these are my influences. And when I listen to them talk about Jesus, that has captivated me more yeah, than, yeah. than anything any Christian has ever said. And so because I'm like- Because it's somebody who could pick anything as an example. Yes. And yeah, like Eckhart Tolle, like, I think I remember asking you about him a long time ago and you're like, no, nah, I never read yeah, that. You know, right. I remember I was like, wow, right. really? Like, it's so good. And then I remember thinking like, eh, maybe, you know, a Christian guy is not going to read right. this book, you know, and, um, you know, like Don Miguel Ruiz, like yep. The Four Agreements or something mm -hmm. like that. I actually listened to Eckhart Tolle before I went to church. Mm. That's what started to pique my interest because the way he was talking about it yes. was not the way that like a Christian person would talk right, about it. Right, And I have like years of experience in this like Jesus tradition. I've studied the Greek and the Hebrew and the historical context of the scriptures and all this wonderful stuff that has been a beautiful hobby for me in my life. And I'm so happy that I can use all of that to help people. Mm -hmm. You know, like I don't have to throw out the baby with the bathwater. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But for me, it, it's about gleaning the wisdom that's found in every path. You know, like why would I rob myself as a human being of the wisdom, human, ancient human wisdom that has been around for so long just because it's under a Buddhist garb or a yeah. Hindu garb or a Muslim garb or a spiritual but not religious garb. No, I want truth. I want wisdom. I'm open to it wherever I will find it. Mm -hmm. And that is what makes this spirituality thing exciting because ultimately we're all saying the same thing mm -hmm. in just a different way. And I see it as like food, you know, like in Colombia, bro, they make their pork and chicken a little different than they make it in a d another place. But it's the same thing. It's exactly. pork and chicken and rice exactly. and, and bread. Exactly. Bread in America is different than the bread in India. Yep. But it is bread and yep. they do it a little differently. You know, I would imagine that spirituality is like the food and religion mm -hmm. is like the country that it's made in. Yes, you know? yes. Because again, it goes back to your point with step 11, like ultimate reality is beyond words, beyond concepts. We cannot capture the essence of what life, God, the universe is with words or concepts. And then I always feel like people that are like super, super hardcore Christian living in America, it's like, you know, this was all written in the Middle East. Mm -hmm. you know yes, I mean? exactly. It's like, you know, that they weren't speaking English, yes, right? Like, exactly. you know, that this was like, you know, what language was Jesus speaking? Jesus spoke Aramaic. Aramaic. Okay. And the New Testament was written in Greek. So we don't even have... And Jesus, yeah, yeah, we we don't even Jesus didn't even write anything down, by the way. Yeah. yeah. So the words we have are words that were written from his followers mm -hmm. about him. Mm -hmm. And there's four different books in the Bible that talk about this man's life and his significance and meaning to these earliest followers of his. Mm -hmm. But um, if Jesus cared so much about the rigid beliefs and like the words and the concepts and the dogmas and the doctrines. You know, he probably would have wrote some stuff down to tell us, hey, believe these three things. Mm -hmm. But all we have left is some really interesting stories about basically homeless dude mm -hmm. who would go around and like 
talk to the people that society ostracized mm-hmm. and give dignity and worth to the folks that were excluded in his day and who spoke truth to ordinary people in ordinary ways and who lived a life of radical trust in God. Mm-hmm. So what I thought was really interesting, what I've never seen, is that you actually had a rabbi come talk at your church. Mm-hmm. So hey, let's back up on how you think. Let's back up on where the idea to start a church and like how the Bible study went. And it's so interesting because we're almost the same age. And the time that you started Heartway is the same time I started a treatment center. Yeah. You know, in our local town, you mm-hmm. know. So like how did you wake up one day and start say, you know what, I want to do my own Bible study? Because I'm sure being young. Yeah. There's a lot of stigma. Oh, yeah. Because I remember I would go to church as a kid and my dad would be like, oh, did you see that priest? He was like 30 <laughs> years old. Why would I ever listen to that guy? He's yeah. never even been married before. Because uh, in, in Catholic, they don't get married, right? Yeah, no, no, So my they dad don't. used to say that growing up is like, how can right. a non-married right. guy tell me about marriage? Right. Yeah, I've experienced that a lot because I've been doing this I, since I was 21. I was ordained as a pastor at 21 years old. At 21, you were a pastor. Yeah, and I'm 31 now, turning 32, I think, in August. Yeah, I think I'm turning 32. I don't remember. <laughs> but yeah, like that's always been a thing, my my youthfulness. But it's been interesting because for all of my young adult life, like this is what I've done. And so it's been dedicating my weekends completely and totally to church while other friends of mine were doing fun things, you know, I was in church and I had to deal with a lot of anger that I had built up inside of me towards religion. And this is very recently, you know, maybe even two years ago or so when I really started to confront this anger that I had towards religion and my religious upbringing and the religious indoctrination that I was given because I felt like it caused me to miss out on life. Like there was a bunch of stuff that I wanted to do that I didn't do because I wanted to be the good boy and do it the right way. And that was something that I had to face and process and work through. Young adults feel this way when they have kids young. So when people have kids young, they start mm-hmm. to resent their children mm-hmm. because, you know, mm-hmm. you robbed me of my 20s. <laughs> right. And, you know, what I had to come to the realization of was that this entire path has led me to where I am now. And what I have now within myself is a treasure worth more than anything I could ever imagine to receive by living the kind of lifestyle I thought I was missing out on going mm-hmm. partying, drinking, sexing, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so, but again, it's like when you grow up how I did, it's like repression. I would repress my sexual desire. I would repress a lot of these desires that I have. And that has an effect that ends up having an effect. You know, those are the kind of things that I've had to work through and accept and integrate as a part of my life path. When did you have the idea to start doing your own Bible study? At 25 years old is when I just got married. And right after we got married, I said, let's start this group at my parents' house. And, you know, at that time, I just started asking questions, but I was still very much in that old mindset, in that um, conventional religious mindset that I had. But we wanted to just make a safe space for people, and that's what we did. 
And little by little, that started growing, and we outgrew the house, and then we ended up moving into a facility, and now it's been six years of doing this, mm-hmm. and and the community has been with me through my own evolution, mm-hmm. you know, even going post-religion now, which is very fascinating. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the people that started with us aren't necessarily with us now, but there is... Um, a lot of continuation. We do have a lot of new people. And some of the folks who have stayed on the journey, like yourself, you know, it's been a beautiful ride. Mm-hmm. It's been a beautiful ride to see how we have become more loving, inclusive, expansive. So what do you say to people that say like, oh, you don't look like a pastor? <laughs> yeah, I mean. Like people say that to you? Yeah, you know, I, people say a lot of things, you know. <laughs> they, it, one person wrote us like, hey, is it a prerequisite to be good looking to come to this church? Mm-hmm. I'm like, dude, people would say all the time. Cause like I would invite just people from the gym, yeah, you know, yeah. like friends from the gym. And, mm-hmm. and supposedly, I guess some people would feel insecure about that. I guess, I don't know what the deal is, but you know. what? Cause I remember you told a interesting story about, you know, how your wife, Emily has gone through her own. Mm-hmm. I mean, I feel so bad. It's cause like, all she did was marry this guy. She's like, what do you mean? I just married this guy. Right. Like I'm just living my own life. And it's kind of like crazy how like, because, you know, and we do this with the president, you know, if you're the president's right. wife, you're a reflection of him. You know what I mean? Yeah. And people expect, you know, the first lady to be a certain way or whatever. And I feel like Emily is really rebellious. Oh yeah, for sure. You know I what mean, I mean? Yeah. And I, tried to put her in a box because of that same false assumption that I had, which is you're an extension of me, you're a representation of me, which basically means I get to control you and you're not your own person, Mm -hmm. you know? And I had good intentions, but that was because I thought I needed to do that to be accepted in the religious world. Mm -hmm. And so my wife used to work out um, a lot. She still works. We still work out a lot. But she used to compete, exactly, bodybuilding shows, and they would have a bunch of bikini pictures and stuff. And I would tell her, look, you can't be posting stuff like this. There's actually one job um, before I started Heartway, 2015, the oldest church in Hollywood, Florida. It's like 90 something years old. The pastor was leaving and he asked me to step in as the interim. It was an old Baptist church. And uh, the interim means I stepped in for three months in between them searching for a new guy. Mm -hmm. And they were considering me for the position to be the new pastor. I was looking forward to it because I'm like, look, we get to inherit a building. It's very Mm -hmm. hard to find property out here. And they didn't choose me. And there was one deacon who was on the board who said, Danny, man, I really was was hoping that they would choose you to be the next pastor, but they didn't. And, you know, part of the reason why is because they said that your wife just basically isn't like pastor's wife material, you know, like her dress is too scandalous. And with her hair being the way that it is, it's just not, you know, going to cut mm-hmm. it for us. And I remember, like, I didn't necessarily mean to, but... I kind of did you you throw that in her face? I did throw that a little bit, you know, and she also felt that like, man, I'm ruining my husband's career path or whatever, you know, so that's where we came from. Mm -hmm. And we had to grow out of that and free ourselves from those shackles that come with life and religion and religious leadership. How has your family taken in how different you have become with Christianity? Like, 
at some point are they like, all right, Danny, what are you doing? Well, <laughs> or are they supportive of it? Yeah, I lucked out with my parents. I don't know about extended family or whatnot. I mean, we I, the issue or topic hasn't come up about my own spiritual journey, but my parents have been supportive uh, since day one, and with all of my change and evolution, they've continued to be supportive. And there was even one point I remember maybe uh, early 2017 where I still wasn't very open and adamant about the fact that we were affirming of LGBTQ people because I knew I had some Christians that were listening to our message that, you know, that's a, that's a no-go mm -hmm. because the Bible says that's a sin. And so, you know, we can't encourage them to continue in their sin. But I had already kind of worked through some of those things mm -hmm. myself, and I knew like— And hey, I remember, uh, you know, what's so interesting is that I've seen you do things that I've never seen anybody do, where I've seen you preach a sermon. Is that what it's called, preaching a sermon? Yeah, I've yeah. seen you preach on Sunday, asking a question to yourself, like, you know, some people would say that we shouldn't allow— LBGT people right. here. You know what I mean? I, some people would say that these people aren't allowed here. Right. And you wouldn't say yes or no. You would kind of be like, I don't really know. Right. You know, like you were still like, I don't yes. know what the right answer is. Yes. And, and that's like, I, you, I've never heard a pastor be like, yeah, I really don't know which way to go with that one. Yeah. And I made a commitment a long time ago that I was going to follow truth wherever it would take me and that I would be authentic and be completely and fully myself. And so part of that is letting people in on this wrestling match that I have, you know, that I have had with certain issues and topics. And I have never been afraid to tell people, I don't know, I don't have all the answers. Some people love that. Other people have left our community because they feel like, no, you're supposed to be the answer, <laughs> yeah, man. You're and you're supposed answers. to give us all the answers. But I was inviting people into the dialogue. You know, because yeah, that's yeah. really what it's about. And this is an ongoing dialogue. I mean, for us to think that we have finality when it comes to our answers, especially about God and life and humanity. It's like, dude, years ago, people were using the Bible to justify slavery. Mm -hmm. Years ago, people were using the Bible to justify war. Murder. Also yes. And people do that with the Quran and people do that with everything. And how they treat their wives. Yes, you know. exactly. So... Anyways, like my dad, I remember he listened to a podcast episode that I did with somebody and I had said to them that, you know, there are some things that I want to say, but I haven't said yet because of certain people in the congregation that I don't know how they would be able to receive it or handle it. It may be a big shocker for them and their worldview. And I mentioned one of those people is my father who comes from a very rigid fundamentalist religious background. And my dad heard that podcast. He called me and he said, son, I just want you to know that you need to say whatever God has put on your heart to say, regardless of how you think I'm going to receive it or not, whether I agree with it or not. And he says, I love you and I support you and just say what you need to say. Wow. And who, you know, that's so rare. Mm -hmm. That's so rare to have that. And so I'm so grateful that my family has been incredible with me through this mm -hmm. because it's hard. I, I did lose a lot of friends even when I started questioning Christianity and rethinking my faith and my spiritual journey. Like I had a lot of other local pastors from that world that I was a part of who now started trashing me and saying a lot of things about me. And 
trying to warn people about me because I'm not preaching the truth anymore. And so, you know, going through all of that and with my people pleasing background and wanting to be like that had an effect. But even though my parents have been so supportive, I had to kind of make the decision beforehand that even if they weren't, <laughs> I'm going to follow this through and I'm still going to love and respect them if they don't understand me. Mm -hmm. That's been an important part of my process. What about, you know, I remember something else that really like I saw happen at Heartway that I've never seen is when you brought up this scenario where you were like, you know, I have people that are not Christian. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think you're saying like I had a friend's dad tell me that, hey, my dad was Muslim mm -hmm. and he was a hardcore Muslim mm -hmm. and he just passed away. And um, are you here to tell me that he's not going to heaven? Right. And I remember, you know, you saying like, you know, that my friend was saying, you know, this guy lived more like Jesus than anybody else I know. Yep. And, you know, what I think is interesting is that your ability to bring in other religions into the conversation, into the dialogue. Right. With still being uh, faithful mm -hmm. to what you believe in. Right. And I don't think that... Like, I don't think that religions compete with each other. They mm -hmm. complement each other. Right. So just because I, you know, love one thing doesn't mean that if you love mm -hmm. something else that it makes me question my own. Like, you can never yeah. take away what I believe. Right. But I'm interested to see how I can find a yes. silver lining yes. or a commonality. And the more that you appreciate what you believe in, the more I appreciate what I believe yes. in. Yes, yes. And the way I like to put it is, even if we don't see eye to eye, we can still walk hand in hand. Mm -hmm. You get that imagery. We may not be able to see eye to eye, but we can still walk hand in hand. And that's why I emphasize love because love is the pinnacle and the fulfillment of all religion, philosophy, mysticism, ethics, politics. You know, love is a force that is able to bind us together beyond our beliefs. You know what I'm saying? Like, if you love somebody, you love them not because of their beliefs, not because of anything other than just who and what they are and because love is inside of you. And whether those beliefs are congruent with yours or not, that has nothing to do with the love you show and the love that you give and the love that you receive. So that's the focus. Can you talk about, like, a specific time where you like really, really felt like someone did you dirty or like you really resented and like how you got over that? Because for me, that's like my biggest issue is that mm -hmm. like, I don't know, sometimes I hold people at such a high standard that I, yeah. I just think like, I would never do that to you. I would never have done that to you. Like in a million years, right. I would never, you know, like I just wouldn't do that. And then I just think about it all the time. Right. And I can write an essay on why they did it. And I can mm -hmm. philosophize why they felt that this uh -huh. was okay. And I knew that it was nothing personal. Right. But that feeling yes. cannot be intellectualized. Right. You know? I have a hard time recalling any sort of particular resentment that I've had towards somebody or, or needed to work through other than, like I said, like this resentment that I had to overcome towards my religious background. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I realized too that when I was that kind of person, I didn't have necessarily bad intentions. You know, I was just repeating and regurgitating what I was taught. And I actually thought I was trying to help other people when I was like, 
a religious fanatic. Mm -hmm. And so when I was pointing the finger of blame towards those other religious people that taught me the things that they taught me and said mean things to me when I left their fold and all of that stuff, you know, when I was blaming them, I wasn't taking into consideration that they too don't really know what they're doing. It's like Jesus's words on the cross to the very soldiers that hung him up there were, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. There's a sort of like unconsciousness that people operate in where they don't even really know what they're doing. Mm -hmm. And when I got to see my own innocence, when I look back at my own religious, you know, fanaticism, since I don't have a better word for it, when I saw my own innocence in that, I was able to start seeing that innocence in these other people that I was blaming and holding resentment towards. And that's what allowed me to say, I'm going to forgive them because they don't know mm -hmm. what they're doing. And so I've just tried to live my life um, from a state of acceptance. You know, whatever it is to resist it, to oppose it is just going to create suffering in me. And I'm the one that has to live with the anger. I'm the one that has to live with the bitterness. I'm the one that has to live with the resentment. If I have to live in this house, I want to keep it clean. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? Nice and organized. And that bitterness, that resentment is only going to make me miserable. It's not going to even do anything for that other person. So to clean the house from that resentment by just accepting what it is, you know, accepting the situation for what it is. And like you said, it's those expectations. We think that these people should act a certain way or that they owe us something, mm -hmm. but they really don't. Yeah, they say expectations are premeditated resentments. Yes. Well, I'll tell you of you know one recent experience. Obviously, you know this. Oh, All yeah. my uh, crypto got wow. stolen. Yeah, that was crazy, bro. And you called me. <laughs> I was gassing you up so hard. <laughs> you were like, yo, what crypto should I buy? I'm like, all of it. Yes. You're like, how much should I put in there? I was like, bro, put every dollar yes. you got. Crypto's going to the moon. I was like yes. on this crazy crypto high. Yes. Oh my and, god! And, and got so, pirated. and so I'm like, all right, let's do it. So I put, you know, I put some funds towards crypto on Coinbase, and I wake up, and I, I'm. By the way, this was before like crash. this crash, and so I'm seeing some gains. So I'm putting a lot in there, you know, for me. And uh, I wake up one Friday morning. Your password has been changed. I had no access to my account, and then I finally was able to see in my trash folder because they got into my email and redirected all the emails from Coinbase to my trash bin, so I couldn't see it when I tried to reset the password. And I look, and in the bottom of the trash, it says that they sent all my Ethereum to another account, which, by the way, when I started following the wallet, because you can see on the blockchain yeah. the wallet. How much wallet's in there? My crypto which is not a lot, but it was a lot, ended up in a wallet that had $172 million worth hmm. of ether. Yeah. So, you know, this was a big fish, a big old whale swallowing a bunch of little fish. Yeah. And um, I'll tell you what, like that Friday, I called you Friday night to tell you. Mm -hmm. So that Friday morning, I couldn't help but just laugh. I was laughing because the feeling that came over me was, this is it? 
Like, this is what we get so scared of, you know? Like, for me, the money that I put in was my mm -hmm. little savings. I already dipped into my savings because COVID. Now I put the rest of this little savings in there. And this was my little cushion for, you know, for a little bit. And it gets taken. So now, you know, it's tough. And I don't have nothing. And all I could do was laugh because I said, this is what we're so afraid of. And I said my mind couldn't create any meaning out of this situation. It's like my mind did not allow me to start projecting into the future this doom and gloom and victimhood. It's like it was not in me. And to be able to see that there was none of that in me was just so refreshing that I could only laugh. Mm -hmm. I could only laugh that I still was carrying peace inside of me. Long story short, that Friday night I call you, you know, and then the Saturday morning... Brian calls me and he says, hey, dude, uh, well, actually, I wake up from a text to Brian from Brian. He says, bro, I want you to make a Coinbase. I'm, I'm going to he's like, I'm going to send you your initial basically as much as your initial deposit was, yeah. which was a substantial amount. Uh -huh. And and I love you and thank you. No problem. And, you know, I had a friend of mine who was like, bro, you know, this is your karma. He's like, you know, you help so many people. You're always doing like serving other people. And, mm -hmm. and now the universe is, is paying you back. And I don't think like that. You know, for me, it was like, you know, this was a gift to be able to get that money restored because mm -hmm. Coinbase still hasn't got back to me. Yeah, yeah, they're the worst. That's, you know. Coinbase, I, if you're listening, yes, bro, you come on. Crypto back, <laughs> yes, bro. It please. Was stolen from him. Come on. <laughs> so, but this gift that I got from you was the icing on the cake. Mm -hmm. But the cake for me was immovable in peace. Yeah. Whether I've got the money or I don't have the money. Mm -hmm. And that's how I want to live my life. It's with this indifference whether it's good or bad whether it's up or down positive or negative i want to find that nice middle ground i always try to think about worst case scenario if all this doesn't work out and uh, one of my employees told me this he was i was stressing one day and he was like are you okay bro i'm like bro i'm just stressing he goes what's worst case scenario i was like i lose everything i don't know he goes your parents still got a house i'm like yeah he's like so worst case scenario you live back home with your parents it's not too bad <laughs> and I remember I was like, he's like, you'll be fine. He's you'll like, you're, you're young, bro. You move back in with mom oh, and dad. You'll dude. be fine. And I remember being like, thanks, Jeff. You know, wow. and uh, ever since then, I try to think like, what is the worst case yeah. scenario? Mm -hmm. And it doesn't really seem too bad when you really think about it. Like mm -hmm. our mind will tell us that it's unsurvivable. Mm -hmm. And then when you survive it, it's kind of like, that's all you got. And see, the thing about it, too, it's like, it's so easy to be treated like this, like I was, for example, like just have somebody randomly that I don't know who mm -hmm. doesn't know me just take everything. Mm -hmm. It's so easy when you are on the other side of that kind of selfishness to now become it mm -hmm. and to repeat it. Yeah. You know, like it's very easy to start going down that train of thinking. Well, if this is what people are doing, if this is how it is out here, if he stole from me, then maybe I need to steal from somebody else. Mm -hmm. If we're not careful when we're fighting monsters, we end up becoming mm -hmm. the very monsters that, that we're that's fighting. How, that's how trauma cycles begin. That's how it goes. Um, so I always thought like, you know, if you're a cop in Boca, you ain't really a cop. You know what I mean? Like if you're a <laughs> cop and yeah. if you've only patrolled Boca Raton, if you've only, <laughs> you know, patrolled Coral Springs, yeah. like... You could be on the force 10 years. Yeah. You ain't never seen anything, okay? But if you're a cop in Hialeah, Overtown, for oh, yeah. one week, you got enough experience 
yep. to last, you know, five years of Coral Springs patrolling. And I share that because uh, one thing that I saw you do is that you went to work at a legit homeless shelter. Yeah. Like I'm talking because I know the mm-hmm. Broward Outreach Center. Uh-huh. And it is where people go that have nowhere to go. Yeah. What was your experience like working there? How did you even, I remember when you told me, because, you know, I'm in recovery. I know these places. Right. So when you were like, yeah, bro, I'm working at the Broward Outreach Center. I was like, the Broward Outreach Center? Because yeah. I've, I've spoken there. I've yeah. been there a couple times. I've picked people up from there. Yeah. When I look at you, yeah, clean cut. Yeah. You don't like to get dirty. Yeah. Super, you know, I was yeah. like, bro, yeah. I, don't, I don't know if you know what that place is. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that was. How long did you work there for? Five years. Wow. And it was as we were starting Heartway, I, I was able to have the opportunity to become the chaplain there at the Broward Outreach Center, Miami Rescue Mission. And I did it for five years. I remember there being times when I would pull up and park at seven in the morning. I would open my door. And right before I step, there is human feces Dookie, yeah. there because <laughs> the homeless folks who couldn't get into the shelter Slept there. ended up sleeping there at night. And then they left a little deuce. <laughs> And then went about their way in the morning and, you know, like that kind of stuff. And then, you know, you have people who they're coming in and they're in our transitioning, you know, building just coming off the street and they have bed bugs Mm -hmm. and they have all these things. So it was definitely a fascinating experience, but I loved my time there because I got to see people in worst case scenarios. And I also got to see people in worst case scenarios who were still smiling. What a gift that was. I remember one dude who was there had his guitar and he would just play and sing. And it was like, no problem. Now, I don't want to glamorize this Mm -hmm. because uh, that's not how it was for most of the people that were there. But I did get to see little pockets of joy in the midst of some really steep suffering. And, and we're talking 20 years, 30 yeah. years of oh, yeah. homeless shelters oh, yeah. on the street, oh, yeah. jail. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, so sometimes, you know, I could imagine now you get hit with some pretty high class problems. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, it's like different. people are like, oh, my life's over. Yeah. Someone yeah. took my crypto. You yeah, know yeah. I mean? It's different. And when you're at that homeless shelter, you yeah. know, you're meeting folks that are, yeah. when you talk about the end of the road. Yeah. This is yeah. the end of the road for most yeah, people. Yeah, one girl, she was a, a prostitute in Miami, and she was 19 years old, and she came to my office, and she had a lot of just questions, a lot of shame that she was trying to work through and abuse that she was dealing with. And, you know, I realized during those years that sometimes there's just nothing to say, and all there is to do is listen and love and affirm and show empathy. And that's what I became good at during these years. But this girl, after we had that conversation, she thanked me. It was a beautiful conversation. We did a little prayer afterwards, just like so she can leave feeling uplifted. Next day, they found her upstairs. My office is on the first floor. She was on the third floor. She hung herself in her room up there because it was just too much for her. You know, people coming straight out of jail into my office People who have murdered other people, people who have, you know, just one guy who he was hallucinating and he was just like, there's people that are chasing me and they're coming after me. And, yeah, because and, at the homeless shelter level, there's a, it, I would say 50% mental illness. Yeah. 
I would say 50% mental illness. And I would also say that homeless shelters do not have any resources for these people that should be in a high level care facility because there yeah. are no, they don't have insurance. They got nowhere to go. Right. And a lot of these people really need some type of high quality care Yeah, that, you know, over there, they're probably not getting. Yeah, yeah. They're they, really getting a place yeah. out of the rain for a little bit. Yeah, you know, they get at that organization, you know, it was the best we could do was offer them a case manager and mm -hmm. we did have a team of therapists that would work with them and we would have outside groups come and do aa and church services and then i as the chaplain was doing a lot of one-on-ones with folks but yeah it, it was limited have, did you have experience with mental illness at that point i didn't i didn't and this was i was you just, just got a crash course crash course i mean i was in my office the first week that I got there and I was setting up my desk and the lead therapist comes into the office and she sees that on my desk I had a cup with a couple pens and a, a pair of scissors. And she says, Danny, no, 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 no. She's like, you got to put those scissors inside of your uh, drawer yeah. in the desk. And I'm like, why? <laughs> She's like, well, you just don't know if somebody's going to have a moment and they grab that and they can use it as a weapon. And then she says, you also want to make sure that you don't block yourself off from the door. You from see how exit. right now, the way mm -hmm. you are, you're blocked off from the exit. You want to make sure that you have this set up so that you can make a straight shot to the door. I'm mm -hmm. like, where am I? What did I sign up for? There was one time when I was leading a class because I would, I basically was in charge of their entire like educational process going through like this journey teaching different principles that we had. And I would teach these courses to them every day. And when I first got there, there was one dude who in the middle of me talking, he would just bust out laughing, bust out laughing. And I'm like, I started getting mad. I'm like, what is going on here? I'm like, what's so funny? At one point I called the dude out. I'm like, what's so funny? Is there something that you want to say or that? And he just like, coward and he said no no nothing nothing five minutes later <laughs> he started laughing yeah i don't know, I, know yeah i didn't know that that was something deeper there you know but i yeah. took it personal at that wow. time so i learned you know as you go um but it was a fascinating experience working with these folks and it, it opened up my eyes um so much and it was one of the best times of my life what's uh, like one of your favorite success stories out of there wow well i will say that a lot of my co-workers were people who were once in the program, mm -hmm. which was the coolest part about it, you know, like, and these are people that I still have friendship with. Mm -hmm. In fact, the president of that organization, Miami Rescue Mission, was once a crackhead wow. who entered into the program. Now he's Mr. President. That's so cool. And so you hear a lot about those kind of stories. It's similar to what you guys are doing. Mm -hmm. I mean, right? A lot of the folks that you hire on staff. Yeah, I think uh, we probably have like probably 15 alumni that are you staff see? now, yeah. you know, and I would say 99% of our staff are recovering addicts, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. uh, last question is, uh, you know, just like what you say about Eckhart Tolle, like when he talks about, you know, Christianity in his books where he doesn't need to and he could pick anything and he chooses to use this as an example that it goes further than mm -hmm. someone who's Christian talking about Christianity. When you talk about the 12-step program, to me, I'm like, wow, like that's really cool because I really believe it's one of the greatest inventions of the yes. 20th century. I think that the whole organization and the way that it works is unlike any other mm -hmm. spiritual, like we meet all over the country. We don't yep. need a fancy building. We pop up a meeting. There's no like leader. 
the way mm-hmm. that the 12-step program works in its organization level is just different than anything else I've, I've ever seen mm-hmm. and has survived based on straight donations and book yep. selling. Yep. Can you talk a little bit about how like your introdu- like what you thought the 12 steps were before and like what you think of it now? Yeah, well, I also um, I'm with you on that assessment. I think that is the 12 steps are like the gift that America has been able to offer to the world in terms of spirituality. Well, I never thought of it that way. You yeah, know, because it, it's, it's one of the only things yeah, that we yeah, actually yeah, came up yeah, with. Yeah, yeah, and, um, and so what I love about the 12 steps is first and foremost, this focus on surrender, because that really is the whole thing. Mm-hmm. And everything I teach, everything I say is about helping people enter into this state of surrender and moving and flowing with life and understanding what is and what is not under our control and being able to accept what is, you know, all of these things that that come with surrender. That's huge. The second part that I love about the 12 steps is this recurring theme of taking responsibility. You know, it's taking responsibility. In, in, in one sense, we are a product of our background, our environment, our friendships, our upbringing, and our experiences. And we operate in this unconscious automatic programming until we wake up mm-hmm. because it hurts so much to keep being how we've always been. And then we start taking responsibility, not taking blame, taking responsibility for the way that I see the world and interpret the world, and then to begin to make new conscious choices and create the life that we truly want to live and to live in tune with who we really are, our most authentic self, that only becomes possible when you're willing to own up to your stuff. Mm-hmm. And and that's what the 12 steps are about. Like when I got clean, I thought like the 12 steps were people using it as a cop out and oh, I'm just an addict and it's like a pity party. Mm-hmm. And the more I d- dove into it, you know, uh, the biggest misconception of the 12 steps is that people have the idea that we are sitting around saying we're powerless. Mm-hmm. And the first step, the most powerful thing in the first step is were. Mm-hmm. is that we were mm-hmm. powerless. Mm-hmm. That when you're on the side of the road mm-hmm. complaining about your tire, powerless. you're powerless. But as soon as someone teaches you how to change a tire mm-hmm. for the rest of your life, if you ever get a flat tire, you now have the power mm-hmm. to. But if you know how to change a tire and you refuse to do the work to change it, now you need to take accountability yes. for your laziness, yes. take accountability for being a victim, yes. all sorts of things, because now you know. That's what we call being in recovery. Being in recovery doesn't mean that you're clean. Being in recovery means that you're clean and that you have been given the tools to change the tire if mm-hmm. you needed to change the tire. Mm-hmm. And then we don't want to sit back and not change the tire and then play the victim. Right, exactly, exactly. And so it's it's moving from that victimhood into co-creator of your life. Mm-hmm. And again, don't we don't have to make it so personal. The best way I can encourage people to enter into this process of discovering who they are and transforming their life is to assess your life, become aware of your behaviors and your beliefs and your habits, but don't make this whole process of changing and transforming into a personal thing. Because if you make it personal, you can fall into two traps. The first is 
the guilt and shame trap from trying really hard, but not being able to do it, mm-hmm. right? Like, oh, I'm trying to get clean, but I keep relapsing. So I fall back into the guilt and shame. The other side of it is, hey, you may be successful, but then you actually start thinking that it has anything to do with you mm-hmm. and you start taking credit. And now you start looking down at other people the ego, who the aren't, pride. yes, mm-hmm. you understand? So, And that I think is interesting with the 12 steps because whether you've been there 20 years or 20 days or 20 minutes, when you walk in that door... There is no hierarchy. Mm-hmm. You are just another person That's it. coming to get a drink of water That's it. because you were thirsty. And That's it. you can't drink enough water yesterday to make up for today. Right. You know, it is just like breathing. You can't breathe a whole bunch yesterday. You don't got to breathe today. Mm-hmm. And um, a lot of times people look down at people who go to meetings because they're like, oh, you still need to go there? Right. Right. But I'm like, let me ask you something. Right. Do you know a Christian who graduates from church? Right, exactly. Do you know someone that practices jujitsu and stops practicing? Right. Do you know somebody that has gotten so good that they don't need to try anymore? So just because I still go does not mean that mm-hmm. it's a crutch. Mm-hmm. Doesn't mean that I'm weak. Mm-hmm. Doesn't mean that I'm going to go and get high. And I was talking to someone the other day and he was like, Look, I go to meetings not because if I don't go, I'm going to go gamble just the way as someone who goes to church doesn't go to church mm-hmm. because if he leaves, he's going to like mm-hmm. go kill somebody. Mm-hmm. You know, it is a spiritual fitness. It is something yes. that I need to condition Yes, because or mine is constantly going reverting to yes. what we see on TV, yes. the news or whatever. And I need to train my brain to think positively. Yes. I need to train my brain to not be a victim. Yes. I need to train my brain to see truth. Yes. And that repetition is what now ingrains you in these new patterns. Mm-hmm. These it new reinforces ways of, it. Yes. But if re- you stop doing it, then right. it'll go away just like working out. Yep. yep. Well, I love you, bro. You Dude, are you too, the man. man. I appreciate you coming out here. And that was Danny Prada. He has a church called Heartway Church. He also has a podcast. He also has an Instagram, Heartway. Yep, Heartway Church or at D underscore Prada. D underscore Prada. Thank you, man. Holler at me. (laughs) Bye. This show is not affiliated with any specific 12-step program. If you or a loved one is struggling with an addiction, please find a local 12-step meeting. If you believe you may need detox or drug treatment of any kind, please call 888-699-9395 to speak to a specialist. The show is sponsored by United Recovery Project, a state-of-the-art drug and alcohol rehab facility. You can visit our website at unitedrecoveryproject.com.